Well, please open with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We will be studying beginning with verse 22, and we'll read and study through the rest of this chapter, 22 through 36. You know, over the past 13 and a half chapters, we have seen Jesus perform many miracles here. Uh, Chapter 4 of Matthew in verse 24 tells us that he healed all the sick. In chapter 8, we find out that he cleansed a leper. He cured a Roman centurion servant in chapter 8. He also cooled a fever in chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. We find also in the same chapter that he stilled the wind. He cast out demon. He restored a paralytic in chapter 9. He stopped a desperate woman's 12-year discharge of blood in chapter 9, verse 20 and 23. He raised little girl from the dead. In chapter 9, 27 through 30, he opened up the eyes of a blind man. He made the mute speak. He healed a man with a withered hand in chapter 12. And last Sunday, we looked at chapter 14, where he took five loaves and two fish, and he multiplied it in order to feed 5,000 people. And after the feast was over, they collected 12 full baskets. These miracles of Jesus Christ are recorded for us here so far in Matthew. And these miracles show us something, friends, about the kingdom of God about the kingdom of God. What do these miracles reveal? When, when we look at everybody who's involved and, and, and those to whom God, in the face of Christ, is showing compassion and showing his kindness, we find out that God's kingdom is both for the rich and the poor. God's kingdom affects both the Gentiles and the Jews, male and female, young and old. In fact, as we look at these miracles, the kingdom of heaven is for everyone who recognizes their spiritual poverty and comes to Christ in faith to rest in him and to be satisfied in him. But these miracles also, they not only reveal something about the kingdom, but the king of the kingdom. They reveal something about the king himself. They reveal the true nature of Jesus Christ, that he is in fact the Messiah, he is Christ, he is Yahweh, he is the Lord. This next miracle here, beginning with verse 22, reveals more of Christ and encourages us to trust him completely, even in the most impossible situation. You know, last week we we looked at the, a, a very well-known miracle, the feeding of 5,000. Well, today we also come to a miracle that is known. If, if, if you mention to anyone just the phrase, walking on water, walking on water, everybody will know what you're talking about. Jesus walking on water, but most importantly, Peter walking on water. Peter walking on water. In fact, the, the, this phrase, walking on water, is used for any kind of impossible situation. Oftentimes, it's like you're walking on water. You hear that everywhere, not just in the religious circle, but even out in the world. And so the miracle is not that Jesus is walking on water necessarily, but that Peter is enabled to walk on water. 
And Jesus does all of this in order to lead his disciples into a greater trust and also revelation of who he is. I want us to pick up in verse 22. We'll read through the end of the chapter and then we'll look at three reasons why we must fully trust Christ. Chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sing, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesareth. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it, were cured, were healed. I want us to look at this episode here in the life of Christ and in the life of his disciples and learn this truth. Trust Jesus fully even in impossible situations, because he is God with us and because he saves us. You know, this passage focuses our attention on the powerful, providential protection of the Lord for his people. I mean, we are amazed at the lengths that he goes to assure us of our safety, of the disciples' safety. I want us to look here and learn three reasons to fully trust Jesus and not be afraid of what we face. Number one, Jesus is always in control of our circumstances. Number two, Jesus is present, always present in our circumstances. And number three, Jesus is always ready to save us in our circumstances. If you look at verse 22, we'll begin by looking at this first reason. He is always in control. I want you to notice a very important word here at the very beginning in verse 22. It's repeated three times. Matthew uses this word three times in this little section, and I believe for a reason, in verse 22, 27, and verse 31, and it is this word immediately, immediately. And in all three uses, this word immediately is followed by an action that Jesus performs. It is followed by something that he does in order to put a spotlight on Jesus Christ. Immediately, Right? He makes his disciples to get in the boat. 
he speaks to them in the storm, verse 27, and he stretches out his hand in order to save Peter. And Matthew employs the use of, uh, of this adverb to, to sort of move the story along, but also for us not to forget the person that deserves most attention. You know, just like the previous section here, the feeding of 5,000, this account is not primarily about the crowds. In fact, crowds are not even mentioned. This is all about Jesus and his disciples. But we find out also that this account is not primarily about his disciples or Peter. This account shows the power and the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus continues to show himself to the disciples until they fully grasp who he is so that they finally, for the first time, Matthew will record at the end of this epistle, they fall down and worship him. You know, up to this account, various people worship him, but not his disciples. And we'll find out later that it is for the very first time, his disciples, after living through this episode, after living through this storm, they finally come down and they say, this one is the son of God. And they worship Jesus Christ. First thing Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is always in control of what is going on. Immediately after feeding the 5,000, Jesus gathers them. Look at verse 22. He gathers his disciples and he makes them get into a boat to go to the other side. This word makes, it's a very strong word. In fact, it, it means to compel or, or to, to force somebody as if against their will so that they would get in the boat and and go. So why did Jesus have to urge them to get away? What's, what's going on here? Well, we know it's getting dark here, okay? It's the evening, it's the second evening, the later evening. It's around 6 p.m., maybe a little later. The crowd is huge. And maybe in order to indicate to everybody that sort of, sort of you know, the, the ministry is over, the feeding is over, it's time to go home and rest. Jesus says, guys, get in the boat. Go, I'll meet you on the other side. Get away. But also, why does he send his disciples before he, he dismisses the crowd? Look at that. Go ahead of him while he sent the crowds away. So disciple go first, and now the crowds. I'm going to dismiss the crowds. And it's very interesting. Matthew doesn't tell us here, and he doesn't include this piece of information, but when we read John, the Gospel of John in chapter 6, look what John writes in verses 14 and 15. He says this, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, this sign of feeding 5,000, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Amen. So Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So apparently the crowds, they hatch up this plan. Jesus is great. It's good to have Jesus here. Why? Because he heals and he feeds. We want a king like that. Why? Because the king that we currently have, Herod, he kills he doesn't feed. He, he, he doesn't do anything except for himself, right? He doesn't do anything for us. This is, this is a great king. Let's go and let's pronounce that he is our king. But Jesus doesn't want anything to do with it. 
He doesn't want to be declared an earthly king by the crowds, by the multitudes. It seems like he also in this account doesn't want his disciples to get caught up in this commotion. Like, you know, imagine the 12 here in the crowds like, man, that's a good idea. It's a great idea. Let's install Jesus as king. And perhaps he gathers his disciples and he wants to send them the way before this crowd gets out of control. Friends, Jesus' kingdom would not come from men. It will only be given to him from the Father at an appointed time. Jesus is consumed with his mission. When at the timeline, right, according to the timeline of Christ, he will not take any shortcuts here. Remember, Satan in chapter 4 offers him the kingdom. Uh, I can install you to be the king, Satan says. All you got to do is just bow down and worship me. Now, these people, they rally around and they want to make Jesus the king, but Jesus had a divine mission and no amount of persuasive, persuasiveness would, would compel him to change his course. Jesus is in control. William MacDonald, he says, he would not ascend the throne until first he had ascended the altar of sacrifice. There's a procedure. There's a procedure here. He must die before he comes back to be installed the king of kings. He's in a completely different or a complete control of what is going on here. He sends his disciples away and he says, Matthew writes that he goes by himself on the mountain to pray. He wants to be alone. He intended to do that. Remember we studied in verse 13, he wanted to be alone with the Father before the crowds got together. And no doubt, you know, we've noticed while reading the Gospels, not just Matthew, but other Gospels as well, all four Gospel writers, they, they often speak of Jesus' prayer life. They give you snippets. You know, we're told, for instance, that Jesus often sought a quiet place to pray, that, that he prayed by himself, like in, in Garden of Gethsemane. He would often go up on a hill or a mountain, like we find here, to go and pray. He would pray in the evening. He would pray in the morning. Sometimes he would spend the entire night praying. And the question is, who or what did Jesus pray for here? And Matthew doesn't tell us what he prayed for or who he prayed for. But when we see other passages, then we find out that Jesus not only prays for himself, he often prayed for his people. He often prayed for his disciples. In fact, Christ's longest prayer recorded in the Gospels is in John 17, his high priestly prayer in which he prays mostly for his disciples then and the disciples who would come as a result of believing those disciples, us. And this bears great significance on this passage in particular because in the very next verse, Matthew tells us that the disciples are in danger. Verse 24, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. The disciples are in the middle of the sea. John tells us that they were about three or four miles in the Sea of Galilee, we know is about seven miles wide. And so they find themselves somewhere in the middle 
and their boat is being battered by the waves. They are tossed by the wind. In fact, look at this phrase that Matthew uses. The wind, he says, verse 24 at the end, was contrary. The wind was contrary. It means that the wind was literally against them. They were rowing, but they weren't getting anywhere. They were in a very desperate situation. When you look at the timing here, the, all the references to time that Matthew uses, they may have been on the sea for nine to 12 hours. It wasn't just like an hour long voyage. They've been there for a while. In verse uh, 23, right, we see that he says, and it was evening, evening, right around 6 p.m. or so. And in verse 24, Or in verse 25, look, and in the fourth watch of the night, fourth watch of the night, this is the time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So if you were to do your math, it's about 9 to 12 hours they could have been there trying to get to the shore, but they cannot get anywhere. And the question that as as I was looking at this and, and thinking through this passage, how could Jesus have sent them out to face this turbulent sea. I mean, didn't he know what awaited his disciples? Absolutely he knew. He did not keep them from the storm, friends. He sent them into the storm. He sent them into the storm. In fact, this phrase, right, the wind was contrary, the wind was against them. It's almost like it's providential, It's providential. This storm is not accidental. Jesus sends them in, knowing what they will face. And while they are in the storm, Jesus is praying for them. Jesus is praying for them. Beloved, God is in complete control over our lives. There's not a single thing that happens outside of his control. Jesus here will not be persuaded to take shortcuts for himself and he will also direct his people into and through tough situations. Thinking about our very trials that we face, when we face our trials, we must remember that Jesus knows what is happening. He is not surprised by it. He directs it. He sees it. And he is praying for us. I, I love what Mark says when he recounts the same exact episode, right? Mark says that Jesus saw them when they were struggling. Jesus sees them in the middle of the sea struggling. Jesus is up on the mountain at least three, four miles away from them. You can't see anything. You and I can't see anything. But Jesus sees. He knows where they're at and he knows exactly what they're going through. And he is praying for them. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. He says, when the disciples went to see, their master went to prayer. Now the same thing can be said of you every one of you who believes and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, that in every trial of life, when you go into your trial, your master goes into prayer. And friends, we know it's true, right? How do we know it's true? Well, last fall, we spent the entire fall studying Romans 8. And one thing that is very clear from Romans 8 
is that Jesus prays for his people. Jesus intercedes for his people. The Spirit intercedes for God's people. We don't need to freak out. We need to trust the Lord. So the first reason to trust Jesus and not be afraid is because he's in control. He says, I'm not going to become a king right now. That's later. I'm going to send you out so that I can demonstrate more of myself to you. Number two, Jesus is always present in our circumstances. Look with me at verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. I want you to notice something. Notice that Jesus let those disciples go a very long time in the storm before he came to them. Eight, nine hours, 12 hours. I think very often in the middle of our own trying circumstances and situations, we, you know, we keep looking for that light at the end of the tunnel, and it's just not there. I talked to somebody this week. We were talking about prayer and, and what to pray for specifically, and you know, they kind of recount as like, you know, I'm just, I'm just here, and I'm not sure what's ahead. I can't see that light at the end of the tunnel. It just doesn't seem to show up. We feel like we're going into the tunnel further and further and further in. We can't sense the Lord's presence. We can't see him. We feel like maybe he has abandoned us. Friends, here in this account, Christ let his disciples go a very long time before he comes to them. And he did it not because he forgot, not because he wanted to punish his disciples, but because he wanted to reveal more of himself to them and to build them in faith, as we'll see. What did Jesus want his disciples to learn? Well, he wanted his disciples to learn that he is not only a prophet, but that he is God himself, the very God, and he is in their midst. He's in their midst. Look at verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on water, walking on the sea. Jesus walks on water. He walks on the thing his disciples fear the most. Not only to demonstrate that he's greater than that which causes them fear, but that he is God, friends, no human being ever walked on water prior to this. In fact, this ability or this idea of somebody sort of trampling on the waters of raging sea is only reserved for the Lord in the Old Testament. Psalm 89 8 and 9 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. God does that, not men. Job 9, 7 and 8, who commands the sun to not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who does that? The obvious question, it's, it's only the Lord. 
that God who has revealed himself in the Old Testament, possessing all ability, only he can rule the seas. Only he can control and only he can walk on water metaphorically and literally. Jesus controls the sea here. He walks on water here. Why? Because he is God. That's what he means to teach his disciples again and again. And that is why when, when in verse 26, when they see him walking on the sea, they are terrified. Why? Because you usually don't peek out and you see people walking on the sea. Because if it's a person who possesses body, you know, bodies, they sink. And if it's a spirit, then you can't see the spirit. And so they can't even put it, they don't even have the category to sort of put this uh, illusion in, that, like, this is a phantom, literally. This is just a ghost. It's a ghost. And verse 27, and immediately... Here's that word again, immediately. Jesus wants to assure his disciples that it is him and that he is with them. Immediately, Jesus, seeing that they're frightened, he speaks to them and he says, take courage, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. He, he encourages them to have a supernatural response. Take heart. Don't be afraid. And think about what's going on here. Did Jesus calm the storm yet? No. He's in the storm. Disciples are in the storm. And he cries out to them, I am here. Stop fearing. He doesn't silence the storm. So it's not the absence of storm, but it is the very presence of God, of Jesus Christ that should cause them not to fear. Jesus is here and the storm is under his feet. He has power over this affliction, over this problem. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. In verse 27, look with me. Take Courage, it is I. It is I. Literally, the Greek says, take courage, I am. Stop fearing. And it's debated often here whether or not Matthew intends to make an explicit connection here to Jesus being God by the use of this I am here. But I think looking at this entire episode before us, I think we can conclude that that is certainly his goal. The more and more I thought about it, the more and more you study it, you, you can't but see this, right, as a reference to who Jesus is. Jesus walks on water, first of all, which only God can do. Jesus is proclaimed later on to be the son of God in verse 33. Certainly you are God's son. And Jesus is worshipped as God. Jesus is worshipped as God. So in verse 27, Jesus says that I am, I am, I am God incarnate here. I am the revelation of God, the very name that God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. 
You know, it's interesting also to observe just the layout on Matthew here and, and specifically where this I am fits. Remember in chapter 1, verse 23, Matthew cites Isaiah 7 and he says that a virgin shall bear a child, right? And you shall call his name, right, Emmanuel. He is the Emmanuel. Who is Emmanuel? Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. Now here in the middle, right in the middle of this book here, he references and Jesus says, I am, take courage, stop fearing, it is me. And then at the very end of Matthew, the very last verse, Matthew 28, 20, Matthew records Jesus saying, and, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I think it is significant that from the beginning to the middle to the end, Jesus is revealed as God who is with us. We are never out of God's reach. God, Jesus here, is with us today. Now here comes Peter. We love Peter. We make fun of Peter oftentimes. Sometimes it's deserved, sometimes it's not. We just lump all of these unfortunate situations and, and we think, well, God help Peter. Peter cries out and he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on water. I read a commentator who says, that's a very bad move for someone whose name means stone. <laughs> Indeed. It's a wild scene here that we get in verse 28. It's the only time that actually the other gospel writers, when they include this scene, Matthew is the only one who actually talks about Peter and what he did. Why does he include it here? You know, some criticize Peter for being self-confident and impulsive and... Um, think that he should have stayed in the boat. And some godly men, very famous men like Calvin and Spurgeon, that would be their position they would take and say, Peter should have never asked the Lord to get out of the boat, stay in the boat until Jesus comes in and, and silences the storm. While others, they praise Peter for his initiative and, and faith. And, and the list is long of all the preachers and commentators. But consider what Matthew says here, or maybe what he doesn't say. He doesn't give us the reason why Peter said what he said. And maybe there's a reason. You know, one thing we clearly see from the grammar of this text is that Peter does not doubt who Jesus is. He understands who Jesus is. It's not like he's asking, Lord, if it is you, I'm not sure that it is you, but if it is you, then let me do this, because if it is you, then I will certainly be able to do this. No, the grammar here can be also translated as since it is you. Since it is you. He, understand, he hears Jesus and he recognizes Jesus in the storm. He doesn't see him, but he hears them, him. And, and Peter's request here, I think, is, a, is an act of recognition. He hears his Lord. And although Peter's response here was just instinctive, I don't think it was arrogant. I, I, I don't think it was showy in any way. Listen, when you look at Peter, you know, as foolish as he is sometimes, we see his love. We see his devotion to Jesus Christ. 
I mean, even at the very end, right, where he denies Jesus Christ, it is, you only find Peter, actually, who's closest to Jesus. Everybody else ran away. Why is Peter in the courtyard? Yes, he denied Jesus. And even after he was restored, right, he could tell Jesus, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Peter wanted to be with Jesus. He was devoted to Jesus. This seems to me that this is an act of trust, daring as it is and dangerous as it is. One thing we got to keep in mind that we are not commanded here to do what Peter did, which we're going to apply that in just a minute. The second thing we see is that Peter understands that he cannot do anything without Jesus' command. He doesn't climb out of the boat and say, well, let's put that, you know, uh, declaration to test. No, he, he doesn't. He's not presumptuous here. Peter understands that only Christ could enable him to come, and so he says, command me, and Jesus says, come. And I don't see Jesus' invitation to be some kind of, you know, cruel joke or some kind of trick to show Peter how proud or, or how weak he is and how in need of salvation Peter is. Truly, I think Peter understood that already. And yet again, he will learn here his lesson. In the moment, this very Peter who is daring right now will be rebuked by Christ. And I think not from, for getting out of the boat, but for not continuing in faith, for not persevering, for not focusing on Jesus Christ. But before we look at what happens to Peter next, we want to consider what's going on here, friends. What do we learn about Christ here in this passage? Because it is all about Jesus Christ. If we want to get into the mind of Peter, I think we will miss the point completely. We need to get into the mind of Christ. What is he revealing about himself here. We learn that Jesus Christ wants to reveal himself as the great I am who is present with us and is able to overcome whatever problem we face. Friends, his presence is solution to our fear. We are often afraid and we need to ask why. Why? Why are we afraid? It's because so often we just lose sight. We lose sight of the presence of God presence of Christ, that he is with us. Just going to scripture and, and being reminded of who he is and whose we are, it encourages us to continue to trust no matter the circumstance, no matter the difficulty. Take courage. Friends, Jesus is with us. Is he with us now? Is Jesus with us now? Yes, to the very end of the age, he declares in Matthew 28. Remember what he said in, in John 14 to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I know I am going, I'm going away, I need to be with my father, but I will not leave you as orphans. And a few verses down, he says, I will send you a helper. I will send you my spirit. He will be in you, he will be with you. The spirit of Jesus Christ, again, Romans chapter eight, dwells in us. He is with us and we can take courage, we can trust him and not be afraid of our difficult circumstances. Friends, even if and when we think, man, he's delaying, he's delaying. Nine hours? 
Why is he taking his time? Or maybe asking, why did he even send us here? Friends, at times he delays so that we can see him for who he is, so that we would grow in faith. Other times he does want us to see our own weaknesses and his power to answer us when we call, which which brings us here to this final reason why we must trust Jesus, and that is this, Jesus is always ready to save us in our circumstances. We go back to Peter here. We go back to Peter and we find him in verse 29, walking on water and coming towards Jesus. Walking on water. This is a miracle. Jesus enables Peter to do the impossible. You can't walk on water. We're not sure how long he walked, but we know that something happened. Matthew says that seeing the wind, he saw the wind. He he takes his eyes off of Jesus and begins to sink. He shifts his attention to the circumstance around him and therefore catastrophe ensues. I believe that is what this episode here intends to teach us, that we are to fully focus on Jesus Christ because he alone is, he alone is the object of our faith. Beloved, it is not the strength of our faith that saves us. It is Jesus Christ who saves us. It is the object of our faith. And it is his strength that keeps us going. Look at verse 30. And seeing the wind, he became frightened. Again, went back to this previous condition and he began to sink. It's an interesting phrase. He began to sink. I mean, we don't have a reference point for beginning to sink, right? Because we're humans. We, we only know what it's like to jump in the water and to immediately sink. But somehow Peter begins to sink slowly. He's in a unique position here and Peter does the only thing, the only right thing you can do here is to cry out, Lord, Save me. Notice that he doesn't say, if it is you, save me. He knows who this is. Peter understands that it's his Lord. It's the Messiah. It's the Son of God. Lord, save me. And notice the final immediately in verse 31. Immediately. Immediately. Again, the focus is on Jesus who stretches out his hand and he takes hold of Peter. Friends, Jesus is ready to save when our faith falters. And I want you to look at the order here and I think it's instructive. Jesus first saves, he rescues Peter and then he rebukes him. Rescues and then Rebukes, aren't you glad for that order? Jesus first catches Peter and then he sort of confronts him. And he says to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This word doubt is very interesting. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It's a different word than than the rest of the context of doubt. Why are you double-minded 
Why were you, Peter, why were you double-minded? Why did you not fully trust me is what he's saying. Fully trust me. Like you first trusted me and who I am and then seeing everything around, you sort of chose the other path and, and you begin to doubt who I am. You know, I think it's very interesting that Whenever Jesus describes someone who is of little faith or he confronts someone with little faith, he is always talking to his followers. Always talking to his followers. He's not challenging people who are without faith to have faith. He is challenging people who have faith to have more faith. Why? Well, because our faith is so weak, it's imperfect, right? So often. Was our faith perfect when we believed, first believed Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, to be the Savior? Is that why we were saved, because our faith was perfect? No, our, our, our faith is often mixed with doubt. What saved us is not the quality of our faith, it's the quality of our Savior. It's the object of our faith. He rescued us. He saved us us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Was Peter's faith perfect here? No. Was it imperfect? Yes, absolutely. Did Jesus save him? Yes. Because of his perfect faith? No. Why? Because Jesus loved Peter. And Peter cried out to him, Lord, rescue. Lord, save me. Jesus stands ready to save. He continues to save us, even in the worst of situations, when we fail to trust him, when our minds sort of are divided. Yeah, I can trust Jesus, but man, I, there's this other way. Should I continue to wait and persevere, or should I take matters into my own hands, maybe? And Jesus continues to save. What is, what is faith? Faith is confidence in Christ. Faith is confidence in Christ that no matter what's going on, Jesus is who he says he is and he will do what he said he will do. He will save you and he will keep you. Isn't that what we were singing? He will keep you from all evil. That's what Jesus does. He saves you from your sins, but it doesn't mean that he will save you from the storms. He will keep you through the storms. And that's why there's this assurance, fear not. It is I. It is the great I am. He is with you. And faith means that we understand this truth and that we fully trust him. He will keep us by his power. And so Jesus here takes Peter. He brings him in, back into the boat and and we, and we read, and the wind stopped. I mean, so simple. No command, nothing is recorded. The wind stops. Why? Because Jesus controls everything. And look, in verse 33, we observe for the very first time that his disciples, they worshiped him. Matthew chapter 2 records that wise men come to Jesus and they worship him. In Matthew 8, a leper comes and he worships Jesus. 
In Matthew 9, a ruler from a synagogue comes and he worships Jesus. But the disciples here were never recorded as worshiping Jesus until now. After about two years of being with Jesus Christ, they are starting to understand who he is. In this storm, they come to a place of acknowledging his divinity and worshiping him. He is the son of God who's always in control, who's always present, and who always stands ready to save. Well, Matthew closes this chapter with, I think, another quick reference that that really reveals who Jesus is again and again. This Jesus, he is so powerful that he heals without a word. All kinds of people we read are brought to him from all districts. And Jesus heals them without their faith and without speaking anything so that they would touch his cloak, touch his garment, and as many as touched him were healed, were saved. These people did not worship him. And yet he continues to extend his grace again and again and again and again, as we saw earlier, because Jesus is full of compassion towards Sinners. Well, beloved, as I mentioned in the opening, the study of Christ, friends, it, it, it cannot be just a, a, a mere mental sort of uh, exercise. You know, and I took Christology class uh, at the seminary and uh, the professor, Pastor John Fernandez, he, Every time we would go in and study, you know, the divinity of Christ or, or something about his humanity, he would always turn around, you know, close the book, and he would say, so what? So what that you know this? How is this going to help you in your life, and how is this going to help you help somebody that you're working with right now? So what that you know that Jesus is God and that Jesus is fully man and that Jesus came to save Friends, Christology, it must be practical for us. And after learning who Jesus is, just from this episode here, we must realize that, yes, we must have complete confidence, full trust, and we must take courage and be comforted in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. I know that many of us are tempted right now by various fears, And you can fill in the blank to just take a detour instead of just remaining steadfast and trusting that Jesus not only knows, but Jesus ordained this. Jesus is in control of this situation. That he stands ready to save and continues to save us when our faith fails. You know, I was just thinking about this episode, how, how clearly it presents the gospel. I don't want to allegorize it or anything, but just thinking about Jesus being in fellowship with the Father here, communion, uninterrupted, alone. He sees a bunch of weaklings out there in the ocean or in the sea, struggling, suffering, dying. 
And Jesus comes to rescue them because he alone can. He's not indifferent. He comes to rescue them. And friends, Jesus rescues us not only from our sin, which he does, and praise God, he rescues us in all kinds of situations. As saints, as saints, we're pretty dumb. I think it's, it's safe to say that here, it's just a reminder for us, look to Christ and plug him in into whatever difficulty you might be in. Don't doubt who he is. Take courage. Trust him. He is in control. He is present. He is ready to demonstrate his power and to save us. Our Father, I thank you for the portrait of your son, really your own portrait. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Thank you that we are not alone. Thank you that Jesus is our high priest who prays for us right now. And that is why we have confidence that we will remain in faith because you strengthen our faith in him. And it is the object of our faith, the very Christ, Lord, the Son of God, who does all things that need to be done for us on our behalf so that we can be pleasing to you. Help us not to be doubting, to be double-minded. I pray, expose our sin, expose our weakness to us. Help us not to be self-reliant, but to rely on you, Lord. We thank you for this truth. Build us in faith. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen.